Hi, this is Matt Hale bringing you um, the Art Monthly Talk Show, which goes out on Resonance FM, which is a great independent broadcasting, I wouldn't say company really, organisation is probably a better word. And we used to do it in their studios. We now seem to have reverted to Zoom. It does enable us to record people in Manchester and in Essex. No, Essex. Matthew, are you in Essex? No. Puffer right now. I'm across the border. Across the border. Sorry. Okay. Anyway, I'm joined today by two writers from Art Monthly's October issue. They've written in other issues as well, but the latest we produce is October 2023, number 470. And it's uh, Matthew Bowman and Bob Dickinson. Hello, both. Hello. Good morning. And, and they've both got features published next to each other in the magazine preceded by an interview. We're going to be talking about their features, um, of which there are some connections across them, which we might try and tease out. Um, for me, the the sort of leading connection is they're both, you both, I should say, use the term neoliberalism. Um, Matthew, in your piece, you say neoliberalism's interests in diversifying private properties into art washing initiatives, that's just one small quote from your mm -hmm. piece, not even a finished sentence. And, and Bob, <laughs> you say neoliberalism's endless expansion of the city's profit-making possibilities. So yeah. you're both aware of neoliberalism and its effects. And really, I'd say you're both trying to be talking about ways of countering them, the effects, mm -hmm. to be fair. But obviously, we probably, and I was going to just it would be fair to say that not everyone listening, and I also forget quite often the precise meaning of things, we should say what neoliberalism is, really. So, Matthew, as we're going to discuss your feature first, that's your go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I suppose... I, 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 <laughs> I suppose one of the aspects of neoliberalism is that uh, modification and uh, marketization of, of everything in such a way as it can... In which a certain property owner class at the expense of, say, kind of working class or can people at the lower run the ladder. Um, so, in many ways, I say neoliberalism is kind of socialism for the super wealthy, and it kind of, kind of puts that as the bottom foundation that socialism is allowed to go into. And it becomes a huge uh, system of exclusions, which as a system of exclusions, permeate especially every aspect of everyday life. Okay, well done. My nutshell. <laughs> you said naturalizing me. In your feature in October Art Monthly, you say you are building on Matthew Herdman's recent article in Art Monthly, which was, I think, called Against Immersion. So that was in June 2023's issue, 467, where he elucidated on the corporate interests that all too frequently underwrite and finance immersive art experiences. So he talked about immersive art experiences and you do as well, but you're, mm -hmm. sort of, you're carrying on from him, as it were, because you both, um, dis you're, you're discussing really what perhaps an experience is, or yeah. you actually sort of go back to, philosophers to, to discuss the different types of experience. I mean, it was very interesting that there was this difference between the word experience in English and then 
experience in German, which has two words, i.e. two types. So I don't know, maybe maybe it would be a good time to actually define them, do you think, Matthew? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to mangle uh, German pronunciation a little bit here, but I I'll do my best. Uh, kind of reading languages has always been kind of stronger than speaking them for me. Um, so in German, you've kind of got sort of two words for experience. And um, one word is erfahren, which basically means a kind of a, a deep capacity for experience. And the second word is erlebnis, which corresponds with a more kind of superficial capacity for experience. Um, so less about what you experience and more about how you experience something. And uh, so, you know, in, in English, when we talk about, when we use the word experience, when we talk about experience, it has empirical connotations. You've either experienced something or you haven't. So that Jimi Hendrix album title, are you experienced? And normally the answer is yes or no um, to that kind of question. In, in German, that's not quite a question that's being asked. It's kind of, to what level did you experience that thing? Right. And, and, you're, and you're talking about experience because of these immersive art experiences or projects or works, um, which are, you're saying, and, and, and I think Adam um, was as well, are much more prevalent than they were. And, and, and they even are promoted as experiences. And mm -hmm. go to them. I, I mean, there was Oliver Elias, Eliasson's, a, a well-known artist's book, which he called Experience, didn't he? And he does lots yes, of right. immersive. What do we mean by immersive, by the way, really? Ex you know, installations. I mean, they're not installations, are they? Yeah, I think it's a, a really interesting word in many ways. And I, I suppose I, I come back I maybe a little bit more to this. Um, but, but it seems to be kind of offering an experience in which you are totally within it. It's all around you. It's engaging with all of your senses simultaneously. And uh, so that art is then got a discrete art object that one looks upon and comes up the strokes one's chin. You're meant to kind of feel it completely and utterly. And uh, the word immersion, I think, is quite interesting. So you, you can immerse yourself in a body of water. You could go swimming, for example. You could go diving. And uh, so that the sea and everything is kind of filtered from this kind of a substance you are immersed within. And um, probably sort of just telegraphing, I suppose, my end of the kind of the essay or argument would be to say, immersion seems to suggest a certain form of isolation. Um, which kind of makes me a little bit concerned. So it's not a big communal experience, or and that's maybe kind of part of my way. It's kind of quite individualizing in, in that aspect. So you're talking about the immersive experience being separating people from each other. Yeah, which may perhaps be. I don't think it's a fact counterintuitive claim. Um, but I certainly kind of get a feeling that it kind of brings us together as kind of individuals rather than kind of builds bridges between us. Okay, I've got it. Okay. 
you talk about an example actually don't you um yayoi kusama i hope i said that correctly who has infinity mirror rooms at tate modern now actually until 28th of april but you say you're only given five minutes two minutes sorry two minutes ah uh, yeah so at the cost of 10 pounds uh, 10 pounds to go into this, uh, mir this mirrored room yeah so so you know it's a uh, it is quite extraordinary step into them and uh, and they are totally enrapturing they are deeply fascinating and i won't deny any of that uh, there is something quite frustrating about um spending a uh, five pounds per minute for a maximum of two minutes in this kind of mirrored space on um, your own are you on your uh, own I, I think you're allowed to bring in a friend uh in which case uh kind of be together in kind of that uh, I, I think if you spend 35 pounds you get dinner thrown in and take modern's kind of nicer kind of restaurant and uh I, I tried to do some maths earlier and, and I kind of sort of started to get back to the maths and somebody listening could figure out far more quickly, but I was sort of thinking, how many people can you get through into the space in, in the course of one hour and how much does that can add up to in terms of income? And somebody else could figure out like £10 equals two minutes and then... I, I haven't you know, been whatever. in that. I've not been in that. But Bob, have you haven't been in that, have you? That work? No, I haven't. No, no. I mean, I mean you two talk, you talk about mirrors matthew um quite a bit in the beginning of your feature mm -hmm. this work uses mirrors what you were sort of analyzing well you were going a bit about the history of how artists have used mirrors um so i think you mentioned robert smithson for instance and others but what what were you thinking i mean in relation to you know this individual how we're treated as it were almost by these kind of immersive artworks how does the mirror come in as a kind of uh effect effective i don't know analogy perhaps of of what how you see those experiences mm. failing, failing maybe there's two dimensions here i think um so one dimension would be to think back to say the most ancient text on art kind of plato's the republic and uh, one of the things he says about art is, in effect, is simply physically holding a mirror and pointing it in different directions and kind of a, what the mirror kind of captures on its surface, its reflection, is essentially all art does. And for Plato, that's kind of ultimately imitation and maybe representation, but it's not truth per se. Um, Plato has perhaps been slightly ironic on that as slightly different kind of story. And then you've got this kind of long history um, of philosophy, I think particularly kind of kicks off from the 1600s, in which um, the mind and knowledge is seen as a mirror reflecting on the world. And uh, when you get to German Romanticism in the late 1700s, um, they become really interested in this metaphor or analogy and say, well, what happens here is when we talk about self-reflection, when I reflect on something or when I reflect on myself, when I think about myself thinking, I'm in fact doubling myself. Um, and so this kind of self-conscious structure, this 
self-reflection structure doesn't actually tell me any more about myself. I kind of lose myself as I go along. I get mirrored on doubled. And uh, a third strand, which in many ways follows from German romanticism, would be the psychoanalysis of Jacques Lacan. And so Lacan's very famous for his essay on the mirror stage from uh, originally published in 1949, but delivered as a lecture in 1936. And he suggests this kind of, this kind of mirror, perhaps literal, perhaps metaphorical for Lacan, and often metaphorical, uh, becomes this kind of a model for subjectivity, for how we come to get a sense of our own sense of selfhood, our own I. But this kind of subjectivity is being turned by an image outside of ourselves, which we tend to take inside of ourselves. So for the Khan, in effect, identity follows from identification. So we all identify with something and that becomes the basis of our self-identity after that. And we never really truly have ourselves, but the kind of interesting how we may be fooled into thinking that we do have ourselves truly represented in the mirror. Sorry, that's quite a long-winded uh, kind of answer to that question. No, but it, it is a complicated um, thing. I suppose what what's what what we I'd like to try and get is is, is I mean I, I I understand what what you're saying. Um, mm. But when when we relate this to artworks that are immersive, for instance, like how are you saying, for instance, when you go to this one which has a chandelier hanging in the middle of it made of glass, you go into the room, the whole room is mirrors. Obviously, you're going to, you must, are you, are, is it, um, you're saying in a sense that as an artwork, it doesn't, if I, if I relate your description of the mirror and its psychological effect on mm. people, that by going to this immersive installation of mirrors, we're not really learning anything. Is, is that is that a very crude, re, 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 I'm trying to get the link, yeah. your description mm. of mirrors and its, history and meaning to the problem with immersive art now. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And suppose kind of, kind of my way kind of frame it, that answer would be to say, this kind of immersive experience seems to kind of promise uh, a reconnection with ourselves in one way or another. So we kind of go there experience something that's sort of taken out of the everyday world and it's going to hustle and bustle and kind of neoliberal kind of uh, desperation and kind of given us kind of, in some cases two minutes in a nice kind of mindfulness space in which we are reflected to infinity um we kind of get to it's like the Sydney Wells slogan get ready to feel more again as if we don't normally feel more, we don't get those opportunities to really feel. And uh, so it kind of feels like they're offering that some kind of respite from everyday life. But what they actually do, and whether they intend it or not, is this kind of a division of the self. And um, we're not getting it's kind of undermining okay. almost more in a sense, the, yeah. the sense that we might have in the city. For instance, I mean, it particularly uh, makes me think of urban, which is how it might relate to Bob's piece. Mm. In the sense that, you, are you saying that the sort of, I don't know, the lo loss of true self, whatever true self is, 
is perhaps caused by urban city living in some way and therefore we seek these these experiences which to try and find ourselves more than we can in in the real life outside of them yeah i think so the kind of caveat would be that perhaps never was a true self in the first place, but that desire for a true self is pretty much persistent. One imagines that but it should, always want to be authentic to something. But, you know, you kind of, uh, you could well imagine you get off, say, St. Paul's Cathedral tube station after a very busy kind of tube journey. You walk over the Millennium Bridge towards the Tate Modern, you pass by thousands of people very quickly, if it's taking photographs and there's tourists and kind of Londoners and all of that. It's really, really hectic. Sometimes if you stop to think about it, quite mansplitting, you walk into the Tate Modern and it seems to be a promising this kind of moment of, ah, peace and quiet in the crowd kind of thing. Or, of course, you don't really get that in Tate Modern because it's also quite busy. So then you kind of join the queue for maybe the Kasama and have your two minutes of uh, mindfulness perhaps uh, for 10 pounds that but that's um so so okay so let's move on you you have other examples and you you talk about um uh the space shifters at the hayward gallery uh robert morris's mirror cubes oliver eliason who's used mirrors quite a lot as well um but and and and, and can you can you say a little bit more about oliver eliason perhaps in relation to this? Yeah, sure. So there's, um, so Eliasson is somebody who I find deeply interesting um, and deeply problematic at the same time. And suppose my kind of mixed feelings on Eliasson comes up, kind of reading people like, say, Hal Foster, and he's an essay like um, The Crux of Minimalism. And uh, so for Foster, and I think we need to go back a little bit in here. So for Foster, and the minimalism was very interested in this philosophy, feminology, um, which is all about our embodied contact with the world. And people like uh, Robert Morris, uh, kind of very early readers of the French philosopher Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and it's translated into English. And people like Michael Fried and Rosenkraus are also fascinated by Merleau-Ponty. And so terminology seems to promote a form of embodied experience in a certain kind of, sort of, kind of unfolding of time, in certain kind of experience of space, without really kind of thinking about kind of, what is this body? Is it gendered? Does it have a particular skin colour? Does it kind of uh, um, articulate, articulate certain forms of class, kind of, so and so forth? I mean, it's never really thinks about what's this space that we call a gallery. It's kind of the, the white cube. And it never really kind of thinks about sort of time kind of pass. And so it sets up a whole uh, cluster of things which gets really nicely picked up on subsequent generations of artists. So time becomes history, space becomes place, and, and the body becomes expressive of various kind of political functions and so on and so forth. And so this kind of, sort of transition from feminology to, say, some like institutional critique. And I think so like, Oliver Eliasson, who's also very interested in Merlin Ponty, is a kind of a regression back to 1960s minimalism. And that can sort of sense of uh, an embodiment, kind of space, kind of place. 
that kind of really kind of thinking very much about the politics of the place or that deeply. It does come in a little bit of Eliasson's work. Um, and then making Eliasson's kind of pieces, such as the Weather Report, um, um, sorry, Weather Project from 2003, kind of really, really uh, seductive. I, I love seeing Eliasson's works. I really find enjoy kind of how I can filter it from the entire body. And yet I'm kind of wondering, where is this going? There's some sort of discussion about, say, an ecological collapse, kind of bringing ice cubes from, uh, what's it, kind of Greenland uh, to outside the Tate and things like that, and being having the opportunity to kind of hug an ice cube, iceberg, with an ice cube, you know, just far too small. <laughs> um, but then, okay, what is that kind of really doing? So there's a kind of a political kind of critique in Elias, and it's not fully thought through or not fully articulated. I don't want him to do kind of more than that. Bob, did you have anything coming to mind? I haven't, you haven't said anything and I haven't let you in. I've been talking well, to you. I think immersive experiences are kind of, they've been around for a long time in a way, you know, mm. going to you know, a big cathedral would have been an immersive experience for medieval people uh, with all the incense and the pictures and paintings and windows. And I think what 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 really, uh, and, you know, capitalism is very good at immersive experiences and was very good before, before digitalization and before all the technology that we've got now to make it, you know, even more spectacular. I mean, um, the planetarium is kind of immersive experience. Mm. Um, um, and it's interesting, I, I sort of Googled immersive experiences in Manchester just before this uh, conversation, and and um, and they're all dining experiences. Like uh, you can have a, you can go for a Faulty Towers immersive um, dinner um, with all the characters from Faulty Towers, and presumably it's a rubbish dinner. Um, and you can go for a four-course recreation of the final meal on the Titanic uh, in another hotel. Uh, and I wonder what they do about the iceberg for that. But um, it, it, it's something that capitalism is very good at. What, what's interesting is the way art, the art world, is trying to capitalise on, on the possibilities of immersive experience and... Um, uh, and other anyway, any kind of um, uh, method that 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 can can bring more uh, visitors. Uh, I was just reading about a Pokemon uh, Pokemon collaboration with the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. Yes, I've heard about that. It's Van uh, it, Van Gogh painting versions of Pokemon characters as if they were painted by Van Gogh. <laughs> Um, I think we should like, say at this point that that's not the artist's choice to do that. <laughs> no, it's artists, But some of the artists are choosing to involve themselves in the, by designing and, yes. and, and creating yeah, immersive yes. works. And sometimes it's, as you're describing there, um, an institution that's doing it. I mean, there is there is also, um, but as you say, there are, I just read, well, the Sphere in Las Vegas opened very recently, which is this huge sort of as it sounds sphere mm. which is an audio and digital 
concert center for and i think you too are going to play there but that, but that that's a great example of a kind of commercial and they're trying to make it more immersive by you being yeah. surrounded by all this imagery and lights and things but matthew you, you do go on though just to be on the to go for the positive i feel that there is a kind of element of positiveness coming out in your feature as well where you talk about but tell me if i'm wrong because i it, it's quite complicated but you're talking about magic mm. in, in mm. the and and a magical thought and the esoteric but can you just cover a bit about why you brought those up and how they may be a different approach? Am I have I got that right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's probably um, two things kind of there. Um, so some of the, the debate around what people like us, Alice Buckner calls kind of new magic, um, so it comes from the sort of sense that there's something not quite right about our world. Um, you know, kind of neoliberalism, capitalism, the kind of feel alienated. And that um, something like magic or kind of, kind of magical practice or other ways of imagining the world um, could be kind of used in order to kind of, sort of rethink our place in that world, perhaps as a, a kind of therapeutic, perhaps as a, kind of a critical endeavour, you know, presenting a, a kind of counter model of what the world can be, kind of striking in many ways, this is kind of quite, uh, quite often say, feminist kind of faith practices, kind of feminist art, and, it's kind of, and kind of lots of kind of different kind of, kind of women artists are engaged in that. And uh, it's often done in a way that's quite knowing as well. So it's not a, like a wholehearted kind of belief in, say, in occultism or kind of esoterica, but it's kind of a, often kind of using these as kind of a speculative fictions that can be sort of set up as kind of a counter model to our received reality. So it feels like, in many ways, kind of sort of, this kind of interest in magic. And I don't think it's a particularly new interest in magic in our world. I just think it's kind of a curator to get kind of notice of these things kind of periodically and make it look like a new interest when it's been there for a long time. Um, seems to be engaging with what I can think is kind of turned towards immersion, claims to be engaged and which is this kind of a kind of poverty of experience in our current kind of world or in our, kind of, our modernity and post-modernity and contemporaneity and all that. Um, sorry, who, who would you take an example of, of, of an artist? Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, yeah no, actually it was a good time to interrupt me because I slightly lost track of my thoughts. No, it's just like, <laughs> is this magic, or this is there? Is there an artist you could you you're thinking of, or artists? Some, there's someone uh, that you did write about, Matthew, who uh, I felt called Kuhn, the um, mm. uh, uh, female artist who was active uh, in the wartime period and up, up until the early '60s, who uh, who has been taken up by. Linda Sterling, for instance, as a, yeah. a, a real a real uh, inspiration, and um, and I thought Cole Coon was a was a was a an artist who was aware. She designed a tarot deck, didn't she? Uh, uh, that's completely yeah. abstract, abstract cards. They're just colours. Yeah, and um, Leonora Carrington as well. Yes, but, Leonora but again, 
Yeah, so you kind of got this kind of historical kind of figures who've been kind of rediscovered, um, and and Hilma F. Clint as well, of course. Um, and of course, I'd say it had an exhibition of her work and wandering up against each other. And then you got kind of more kind of recent figures such as uh, Tai Shani, uh, Serena Kord, uh, kind, kind of Alice Bucknell, um, uh, to be uh, to be to visit. And, and so quite quite it's quite a widespread kind of thing. What well, certainly kind of feels that way you know, at the moment. Or, Maybe it's kind of more noticed. And it's kind of interesting that some of these artists also have this kind of quite high-tech and sometimes fairly immersive thing happening in their practice. Sarah, um, so, Z. Sarah Z does it, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what she what we kind of really recently saw um, the waiting room kind of by her, or if you go back to um the Black Fantastic exhibition that was at the Haywood, was it last year? My, my sense of time gets all muddled. Uh, I think it was last year. <laughs> um, but uh, can it speak to kind of a series kind of installation, it's kind of a sort of, um, pyramid structure in which kind of, uh, kind of videos kind of projecting I'd say either from it or onto it. And, and the kind of, sort of, kind of mirrors kind of all around you and can use a kind of, sort of sound um, going on. And, and so there's some really interesting kind of crossovers in that. Well, Tai Shan is kind of a good example. So she's been interested in lots of kind of sort of world building, I suppose, in her art practice at the moment, kind of exploring sort of certain kind of mythologies, um, the witches of kind of Alicud, Alicardi, sorry, and kind of Ergot, so hallucinogenic kind of a substance that kind of grows on kind of wheat-based products. Leads you to imagine yourself as kind of a witch or those close to you as uh, magical beings and things like that. Um, so I find that all that kind of really, really kind of quite striking and quite interesting. But but as a as a kind of oppositional or as a different take to the initial installation we discussed um, at the beginning of the program with the mirrors. I mean, you think it's a kind of how does it improve? If you see what I mean. To be to be bringing it mm. down to a simple level, sorry. Yeah, I, I, I think it improves uh, probably because it gives um, slightly more autonomy to the viewer. Um, so this kind of, sort of talk of kind of world building that seems to be quite common to kind of magic practice becomes an invitation for the viewer or um, the beholder to kind of, sort of kind of make connections between the different artists. The artists themselves are kind of making connections. So, we say, for instance, we can sort of talk about, say, African religions um, in relation to the structure of computer programming. Um, and these are quite kind of maybe compelling or maybe not so compelling, but they're quite speculative kind of connections the artists are making. And you can invite us to kind of go along with it or not go along with there's it. More, there's more to kind of think about and differences going on within the work as opposed to just and, and there's room to think as opposed to being just immersed supposedly in a sort of auristic passive way yeah and i think it's quite there's kind of a lot kind of interweaving that kind of happens right and and, and i think that's a big distinction ultimately immersion and interweaving for me let, let, let's let's give bob some time as well now um um bob um i've got a quote here which i'll um I mean, the beginning of your feature, it says you're arguing that citizen artists can perhaps find ways of intervening directly to halt the seemingly inexorable process of gentrification to benefit their community. So basically, basically your piece is 
I'm not going to sum it up, but it's about cities, artists within them, how they can be used or not used fundamentally. Um, I mean, you say in recent years, um, once seen as saviors of the post-industrial city, are increasingly viewed as agents, artists, this is, I think, in accelerating processes of urban change that are neither in their own interests nor in interests of those they live among. What, 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 how are you thinking about um, artists? We've been talking about artists' actual work, and now this is about artists sort of out of the gallery in the world a bit more, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I, I wanted to... I wanted to write an article that was not pessimistic about regeneration. And I mean, I, I've, I've lived in Manchester here since, since the late 1970s. And I've seen, you know, when I first came to live here, the city centre had nobody living in it. And many of the buildings were just empty. And now it's um, a kind of like Chicago or something huge amounts of skyscrapers, lots of people live there, lots of people spend a lot of money on rent living there. And that's been accompanied by the uh, presence of artists and uh, and new galleries. And uh, gentrification has, in fact, undermined the presence of several of those uh, artists' uh, galleries, those those artists' uh, Projects. So it's and and what I wanted to look at was the way, in the first part of the article, the way that uh, cities that have undergone regeneration and most post-industrial cities have done have gone through this process, have uh, encouraged artists to come and live in low-rent um, properties and work there and sell their work and attract visitors, and then the gentrification process has, has become faster and faster. And so the presence of artists has been uh, has become less welcome in some places. Like I've, I've looked at Los Angeles and, uh, for instance, in the, the Chicano uh, Latinx uh, districts of Los Angeles. But there are groups that have been campaigning to stop gentrification that have been represented by other artists. So people's groups, people's artists, if you like. And uh, this was sort of to tie, I've tied this in with a big exhibition that's going on in Berlin at the moment about, uh, uh, which is uh, commenting on gentrification in uh, post-communist Berlin and the way artists have, have been able to take advantage of low, uh, low rent, empty uh, uh, tenement properties after the collapse of communism. And they've stayed there and the gentrification process has actually pushed them Push them out, or many of them. Um, so I wanted to look at what, what, where else you could take art, and as, or what, what else artists can do in this sort of situation. And I looked at, so I, so I decided to, to sort of come up with a phrase about, about getting inside the city, about understanding the processes of the city, and trying to open those out. out and sometimes the processes are actually to do with the what I looked at, for instance, um, the U.S. artist Merle Lederman Ukulis, who is from New York, who famously worked with sanitation workers. And she still does. You know, she's been doing it since the late 60s on this touch uh, sanitation project. Um, 
And incidentally, the picture, the photograph that's published it, along with the article is a brilliant photo of Merle Lederman Ukulis and a sanitation worker. Uh, and he's in the process of throwing uh, a bin full of garbage into the back of a truck. And he's got his right leg uh, lifted and she's co copying him. She's kind of imitating him because obviously that's part of the gesture you have to do to get the, the trash into the back of the truck. <laughs> it's a great photo. Um, do you think it's a form of empathy? It makes you think of em it's sort of em a kind of empathy. Yeah, yeah. What I, I mean, I, I, her, her, her performance, as it were. Yeah, I mean, her pro process was to, to actually shake hands with every sanitation worker in the whole of the city of New York. It took her years, and she did various other projects as well, <clears throat> working alongside them. And she's still doing things, uh, uh, commenting on, on thanking, thanking sanitation workers. So it brings that part of the way the city operates into the into public, it brings, it gets public attention. Um, and she's their official artist. You know, she still is, unpaid role. Um, but I also looked at other people who have been trying to work inside the inside the city, getting inside the, the nuts and bolts of it. And um, so I, I looked at uh, a guy called David Leopold, who's actually a sort of sociologist but he's working in former Soviet cities um, to examine the, the to, well, he's working with people in kind of psychogeographic ways. That's why I thought it was appropriate to write about him. <laughs> to, and he's, he's, he's so I, I wrote about his, his uh, projects that he's been working on in Yerevan, which is in Armenia, um, the capital of Armenia. Uh, in which he's got volunteers to look at the 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 lesser known parts of the city and to think about what communism did that was actually possibly quite good um and during the writing of the article of course this crisis erupted uh in Nagorno-Karabakh which is um a disputed territory with which is inside Azerbaijan, which is right next to Armenia. It's in the Caucasus. Um, and during that, during the last few weeks, the I think pretty much the entire Armenian ethnic population of Nagorno-Karabakh has has left. They've been forced to go by the the uh, armed forces of Azerbaijan. Um, this is a long-running dispute that's been going on in the area for. Uh, well, ever since, probably since the Ottoman Empire collapsed at the end of the First World War. Um, and uh, Armen uh, Azerbaijan is, um, is predominantly Muslim. Armenia is predominantly Christian. Azerbaijan is uh, closely linked to Turkey uh, politically. And there's a gas line, a gas pipeline that runs from Azerbaijan to Turkey and thence to Europe. So it's very important. Where's the, economic... oh, where's the art connection with this this historical? <laughs> well, I'm just explaining the sort of co the, the 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 complications of living in a place like Armenia right yeah, now. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> no, no, I was just into. I was just interested to to, to bring it back to the art as well. Yes. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's another artist I've looked at who is David Bestway, who is Catalan. Yeah. And I was looking at his 
um, exhibition City of Sand, which is on in Barcelona until the end of this month. And I just became interested in the way he's he's opening up history to you know through his art. His, this current exhibition explores the whole uh, history of Barcelona, really. And it's this idea that's also going on with um, with Leopold's work in Armenia, which is there are lost futures in all cities. There's a kind of archaeology of lost futures where people have experimented with utopian projects like communism, for instance, or there have been revolutions uh, which have happened in Barcelona in relatively recent times. Um, uh, and it's still it's th that that movement for Catalan independence is still a real thing that people uh, believe in in that part of the world. And there's the whole there's the whole history of like the Spanish Civil War and uh, in, in relation to to Ca Catalonia. Does he draw <laughs> to that to those his to that history in yeah, your, there's, what he's doing? Yeah, there's this big there's part of the exhibition where you see. Uh, Front covers from the local, the local newspaper, um, just flashing. You know, it's like going through um, uh, a very fast journey through time. Yeah, you see yeah. all the, the the crises. But but I'm I was particularly interested in I am particularly interested in the way he uses he works sculpturally to mm -hmm. explore time and to manipulate time. Um, like he will. He, there's this particular piece that he's he's made, which I think sort of sums up what he's capable of doing, which is called A and B, fragment of place where a person was born and fragment of the place where that same person died, which he did in 2015, which is a it's like a horseshoe hanging from a, a nail or a pin in the wall. And one end of the horseshoe contains dust from where this person was born and the other side of the horseshoe contains dust from where the same person died. He works with resin and he will use, he will build the dust into the resin to make the sculpture. And the, the statement is in the horseshoe shape. Uh, so I'm, I'm very interested in the way he looks at time and he builds time into his sculptures. There's another sculpture he's, I'm talking about where, um, which is called Apple Cypress Boat Ravine which is made from things, objects that have been taken from uh, apples, from a cypress tree, from a boat that was smashed up and from the bottom of a ravine. So there's substances that he's made into sculptures. Sculptures have a hole in the middle. You can look right down this kind of tube, but the, the sculptures are not permanent, they are designed to disintegrate because there's no water holding them together. And water is what created them in the first place. So I thought this is quite an ingenious idea about time and about the, the flow of m memory, perhaps. And, um, and I began to, to think about the way that, um, that cities you know, it, it, it seems like an admission, you know, that particular sculpture I just mentioned seems like a uh, some kind of statement about human failure. But actually, I think what Bestway is making us also think about is the way that cities are gatherings of people. They're not just buildings. They're gatherings together of people 
And they're always going to be like that or else they won't be cities. So and we have to work together as people to make our cities work better. That's really what I was trying to say. Yeah. And artists finding ways in which to try to assist with that. Exactly. Make people aware of it. I know it's not very trendy to be optimistic. I'm not always optimistic. I'm trying to find a way to write about art in such a way as to make people politically feel more confident, maybe. Yeah, you mentioned Berlin. Um, uh, say there was a the Kunsthaus Tachelis, um, which was, yes. they had a campaign called We Are Staying and then there was also another campaign in New York called Here to Stay campaign. If I got if I got that right, there's two different campaigns of a positive kind about anti gentrification. You know, artists being used as gentr for gentrification. I think. Would, can you say anything about those? Or yeah, I mean, the the Tackley's st uh, Center was a was a squatted space that had uh, that. It was squatted quite soon after the collapse of communism, and it was there for a very long time. And it, there was a lot of artists who worked there, and it had a cinema and a bar, so it was open to the public. But it was obviously prime, yeah, uh, yeah. prime, prime so space it, for, for it's exploitation. A negative, it's a negative example I've given you, isn't it? Yes. So, <laughs> so it's not there anymore, unfortunately. You do also mention, for instance, buildings in um, Liverpool and in the north. Which in the night because there was Glasgow City of Culture, and and then from that point on, people were encouraged to use old buildings and renovate them, like with Tate in Liverpool, sure. and and various others. I mean, that's going back a bit in your in your piece. But I, I, in terms of this optimistic thing, I mean, some of those places are still, you know, live art centres. They're all most of your examples were galleries. I noticed there was because I was thinking of studios in Manchester, like yes. Yeah, Works, yes. um, you know, and others that that are still going. I did also notice Tetley, for instance, which its lease has just run out, and they're going to leave it. And that was a big building that was used to be a brewery, and then became an yes. art. Actually, it's going to end. So, but this use of buildings for, positively, it does occur still, doesn't it? It's just, oh yeah, and there are still artist studios, you know, that like Islington Mill, that's that's still. Functioning it's been there a long time, hasn't it? I been think. there a long time, and uh, as I understand it, that's because they they own it. You know, they've they found they a way of keeping it. it. They've found a way of keeping it. It's yeah. other places where they le where they lease the space that they're they're vulnerable to being yeah turfed out and the place turned into a luxury hotel. Yeah, um, squatting doesn't happen much now because buildings aren't really available like they were in the quantity anyway as far as i'm aware but that was always a, i thought was a very positive thing to do however it always had a kind of time limit really yeah yeah mm. yeah 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 so, i feel as if i'm bringing this back down to the sort of negative side <laughs> i didn't want to do that i want you to tell me more more positive examples of, of well, I'll say, well i think what would be really good is, is if if this idea that artists think about how to be the use the word civic it, I mean, I made me think of civic duty, but c civic kind of, you know, caring. It's like caring. Yes. And it, which is a very positive thing. Mm. Well, this is what um, Merle uh, Lederman Ukulis, uh, I think, uh, believes and knows because uh, what she she 
she started that project in New York when she had started having children and she realized that looking after children was uh, maintenance. It was, it was caring work and it was real work. And one of the things she realized about sanitation workers that she interviewed was, I think a particular moment of importance was her was when they started, she asked them what they thought about the public and they would repeatedly say to her they, that, that the public don't like us because they think we're their mother. And that really struck home, home with her. That it's not really like you'd expect that at all, is it? No. <laughs> a bit Freudian or something, isn't it? Well, it is great, but, it, but, it, but it relates to this idea of care. Yeah. And, yeah. and, 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 the home and children and stuff like that. So, yes, it's a really important idea about how an artist can position themselves, I think, and think about their work. And, and that's what makes her stuff so powerful. Yeah. And in relation to, to others, Matthew, sorry, I haven't, you haven't, I haven't really let you in, in, in this last 20 minutes or so. <laughs> Was there something you'd like to ask, Bob? We, we, we'll finish fairly soon, but we've got a few minutes yeah. left. Yeah. I suppose, uh, I was thinking a little bit about that notion of psychogeography and uh, and I really enjoyed the way you spoke about um, kind of, uh, David Bessery's kind of practice and I hadn't heard of that work before so I'm really grateful that you did mention it and I suppose um, I'm not sure I've got a specific question but kind of more maybe to a comment or maybe it's just kind of points of connection um, but, but um, that kind of interest in the say kind of Walter Benjamin and this kind of whole kind of a traditional experience that kind of Benjamin talks about, it's also really deeply linked to his sense of Paris and the changes of Paris and trying to write a, a almost kind of materialist kind of history of Paris and one of our kind of futures that didn't happen at the right time. And so by the time you find the future, it's come kind of fossilized in his expression. And and I kind of guess there's that kind of really fascinating thing about um sort of time and sort of and kind of psychogeography and perhaps kind of sort of psycho kind of history as a counterpart to that in which kind of a time is not like one event followed by another event it's almost like one thing on top of another thing it's kind of a physical sedimentation of time that ultimately it is kind of ashes to ashes dust to dust and i think that's kind of really nicely kind of captured kind of a it's almost kind of a quite physical, very sculptural, kind of hands-on way of that. Uh, I was going to say concretizing the future, but maybe kind of resonifying the future, at least for a moment, they can embed those work. Um, and I thought it's a really nice way to experience us connection to place and our connection to time. Yeah, and I mean, I like, I like, I, I'm fascinated by that idea of, yeah, of archaeology and layering of uh, the city, and sometimes you can, if you do psychogeography, uh, I think, and and I think Benjamin did. You know, he did. Mm. That was part, part of his way of thinking, his way of working, and his way of uh, using the city and, and and interacting with the city. Is that you see you you see those layers? But I'm also fascinated by that idea of lay of of the archaeology of the future. You know, that the future has been tried, and there are these. You can rediscover these experiments. Um, and uh, you and we need to be reminded about them. We need to, mm -hmm. to educate ourselves a bit more about them. 
because because yeah. they have a value that because you you could do them again or or do them and learn from them and, and use them in the future literally well because they're they're part of of the there are different dimensions they're entries into different dimensions of the city that we think is just this superficial series of of uh streets and planes and uh, angles and it actually there are these other dimensions that you can ex explore it's a bit like what we were saying with with ma magic you know mad magicians have correspondences they they see an object and it's associated with another object and it's got different meanings well the psychogeographer the wolf the walter benjamin uh uh mentality is to is to is to is to detect those other dimensions in in history it, by by engaging with the city well put thank you both so much you. We, 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 we're not completely out of time but i will probably put a bit on the end of the program to encourage our lovely listeners to subscribe to art monthly in order to read your features in full which as i said at the beginning of the program or the top of the program as i'm supposed to say um is issue october 2023 number 470 in which they both appear um and you can subscribe to Art Monthly listeners um, on our website. There's a buy page, click a button, and I shall probably give you some more details after I say goodbye to these lovely people. Um, thank you both again for coming on. Um, as ever, we went, we, we, we covered some of your features. It's impossible to cover everything in them, but the details are in the writing. And that's what we want people to do is subscribe and read it. And uh, I'm sure you'll write for us again and come on the program again, hopefully. <laughs> thank you absolutely thank you very much Matt it's been a real pleasure yeah, I think thanks. I've been looking at one person in a cupboard and one person in a library <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a kitchen so, so you've got all yeah, the, the, most, most of domesticity involved here yes I'm now being oh, yes. it's not a cupboard yeah, yeah. it's a bigger room than I thought thank you Matthew it's a big cupboard anyway whatever works thank you so much both of you thank, thank you, you. thanks a lot Bye -bye. It's a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Art Monthly Talk Show broadcast on Resonance FM UK Network of the Year. You can subscribe to Art Monthly print magazine or digital by going to the Art Monthly website, artmonthly.co.uk. And you can save money by taking out a recurring annual subscription we should get one issue free. The individual rate for this is £42, post and packing in the UK. There are other options available if you're abroad. You can also receive digital subscription with your print for an extra £10, or you can subscribe solely digitally. This digital subscription gives you access to an archive going back 470 issues. The first issue of Art Monthly was published in 1976 and every issue has been scanned and made available on our archive, which you get when you subscribe digitally. So we highly recommend that option, especially with a print, so you have both paper and digital. Thanks for listening to the Art Monthly talk show. The features discussed in today's programme were in issue 470, October 2023. Goodbye.